The Old Testament reading is taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Chris. I'm the children's and youth worker here at St. Joseph's. I'm actually down with the children and young people now, which is why I'm joining you uh, by video. I wonder, do you know these words? I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed days, the dark sacred nights. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colours of the rainbow so pretty in the sky and also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry, I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. These are obviously famous song lyrics. And if you've been following our series in Genesis 1-4 to up to this point, you would think that Louis Armstrong is aptly describing the amazing world that God has made and the amazing relationship that mankind has with it and with each other. It's pure bliss. God has made the world purposefully and lovingly with his powerful words. All that he's made is good. He's made mankind in his image giving them responsibility and value and honour. 
He's made man, uh, he's made, made man and woman for each other as a way of imaging who God really is as a Trinitarian relational God. And he's generously provided for them with everything they need for abundant life in the Garden of Eden. But we all know only too well that the story is only just getting started. We do live in a wonderful world, but it's a far cry from Genesis 1 and 2. Louis Armstrong's song doesn't describe all of reality. It's for those wishing to escape from reality for a few minutes and ignore so much of life around them. Life where wars rage, pandemics take hold, prisons are full, families are divided, promises are broken, greed is everywhere. I don't know in what ways, but you will have experienced this brokenness this week, maybe even today. What has happened to our world? What has happened to mankind? We need to know, don't we? Without the cause, we're hopeless for a solution. In fact, if there is no knowable cause, all we're left with is to close our eyes, put our fingers in our ears, and whistle Louis Armstrong. But the Bible is very clear on the cause. It's very clear on where it all went wrong. And that's why it gives us hope for providing a solution. It all starts with lies. We're back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and then Genesis 3, verse 1, the serpent appears in the garden. We later find from the rest of the Bible that this is Satan, or the devil, a fallen angel who set himself up as the enemy of God, or as Jesus likes to call him, the father of lies. And when we see why Jesus gives him this name uh, in what happens next, he says to the woman, Satan says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's posed as a question, but essentially it's a lie. It's a leading question. It's a question that tempts Adam and Eve to doubt God's word and which makes out that God, the entirely generous God, who's given them all they could desire, including an especially relationship with himself, has been in some way stingy. The devil's first lie is that God is mean-spirited. Is that a lie from the devil that we are still tempted to believe today? Eve replies then with a lie of her own. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But God makes no reference to touching the tree in Genesis 1 and 2. And so the lies are building and the mistrust in God is building too. Where's Adam at this point? Negligence. He's been given leadership over the garden and over his wife. And yet where is he when this unclean serpent is allowed into the garden? Where is he when his wife is being tempted to distrust God? Well, we know from verse 6 that he's with her. But he isn't standing up for God or for his wife, but is instead passively letting Satan get a foothold in his wife's head. The Bible is clear that what happens next is Adam's, is Adam's sin as much as it's Eve's. And next comes Satan's big lies. 
You will not surely die, verse 4, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. You will be like God. You will not surely die. You will be like God. God has promised in chapter 2 that the consequence of rebelling against him as the life-giving God is sure death. Satan's lie has always been that rebelling against God brings life and joy, not death. Instead, according to Satan, you will be like God. These two lies are both lives, lies we still believe today. Now, we're going to listen to this song next, which we're not going to sing along to because it's written from Satan's perspective, a bit like C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. And I think it's really helpful for seeing his lying and scheming for what it really is.
but I'll say that millions of years ago an accident exploded, and you're the result of this cosmic unknown with no real purpose created for no real intent. The reason for your living is just coincidence. So all that remains is what you can gain. Whatever meaning you attach to your days, you decide. found that helpful, challenging, and uh, in a strange way, encouraging. It's not just unbelievers who believe Satan's lies, but as Christians, we do too. How many of us still look around at those of our friend, uh, the lives of our friends, uh, colleagues, family members who don't know Jesus and enviously wish our lives could be like theirs? tempted to believe that that looks like truly living. A bank balance I can guilt-free spend on myself, a lie-in on a Sunday morning, not being the awkward one on staff socials who's not drinking or gossiping, a freedom to embrace the culture's ethics and ideas without a thought to God's good design. When the truth is that it's all Satan's lie. Away from God, there is only death and disappointment. The truth is the culture we're surrounded by is not truly living. It's struggling away from God. 
It's embraced Satan's lie as human societies always have and is facing the inevitable tragic consequences. Having to view the world without our good, generous creator, God, leaves people more anxious, more hopeless, less satisfied, more fractious, more scared. They're spiritually dead and it shows and it's so sad. Ultimately, this spiritual death leads to a hopeless physical death and ultimately eternal death away from God. Death is something we've managed to hide and cover up for a long time, but not this year. You see, Satan was the liar, not God. Life away from God does lead to death. And as the strapline to the latest series of Line of Duty puts it, lies cost lives. The other lie that Satan is telling is that by disobeying God and sinning, that we humans would become like God. But it's just a lie too. We've already been told that we've been made in the image of God. So in some ways we are like God. But one way we really are not like God is in our knowledge of good and evil. Or at least we aren't able to live like it. No one who chooses to be God of their own life can claim that they've even lived consistently with their own moral standards, never mind uh, the moral standards that God has instituted and revealed in his word. No, we don't become like God through disobeying him. We just lead ourselves to the death that God promised. Sadly, Adam and Eve bought the devil's lies. How do we know? When it says in verse 6 that they took and ate the fruit and sinned against God. But we also know because as humans, we've been doing the same thing ever since. Have you ever watched uh, Who Do You Think You Are on BBC? Where celebrities trace their family histories to see who they're related to and to try to understand why they're like what they're like. But none of them go back far enough. If you want to understand why you've got blue eyes or a good left foot or a natural skill with languages, say, then all you have to do is go back a couple of generations. But if you want to know why you prefer to be ruler of your own life, why you naturally accept God's gifts but don't accept the giver and sin against him, you need to go all the way back to our father Adam. Every child of Adam has repeated his disobedience. And just as we're like Adam in our sinning, the consequence of that sinning affects us in similar ways too. And the first consequence is shame and guilt enter the world. Adam and Eve's eyes are opened and they know they are naked. Previously, their relationship with their God was close, intimate and shame and guilt free. Now it is anything but. God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day for his evening stroll with them and they hide. Look what they've given up. Imagine putting that walk on Strava. They'd had such a close relationship with God and now they're hiding. God calls out to them, where are you? Adam says they've hidden because they were afraid. They were ashamed of what they'd done. They knew they were guilty. And each one of us, I'm sure, has felt exactly the same about our sin. 
We've known guilt and shame. We've been scared about what other people might think of us if they truly knew what we were like under our polished facades. Never mind what a perfect God who can see right into our hearts thinks of us. I've had the privilege of leading quite a few Christianity explored groups for people looking into the Christian faith. And let me tell you, this is the least controversial part. No one has ever told me that they wouldn't mind having their lives on display for others to see. Everyone tells me they feel guilt and shame about how they've lived. And that guilt and shame is real, it's reality. As sinners, um, we are all guilty of sin in the eyes of a perfect God. So the relationship with him is broken. We want to cover up at all costs. For Adam and Eve, that meant making clothes out of fig leaves and hiding. For us, it might mean deleting our browsing history on the internet or looking respectable on social media. But none of it really covers up sufficiently when it comes to God. We need a better cover. And we'll come onto that later. But firstly, the second consequence is that the blame game begins. Have a look at verse 12. The man said, said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Caught out by God, the blame game begins. Adam blames Eve for giving him the fruit. He also blames God to a certain extent by pointing out it was God who put Eve in the garden with him. Eve blames the snake. And sinful humans, we haven't changed. We don't want to take responsibility for our sin. We think up every excuse why it's someone else's fault. But Genesis 3 is clear. Adam and Eve are responsible for their own sin. We may have been tired, we may have been stressed, we may have been tempted, we may have been egged on, but ultimately we are each responsible for our own sin in God's sight. So what do we do in light of all this? Is it all just bad news? I said at the start that if we know the reason our world is so full of greed and selfishness, that we might be able to know a solution. We might have some kind of hope. And we've discovered that the problem is ourselves and our believing the devil's lies and uh, sinning and rebelling against God. And the consequence is broken relationship with God and, and death. Well, the hope is not you and it's not me. You see, from birth, we are Adam and Eve's children too. We've followed in their paths. We've made the same mistakes. We too are totally responsible for our sin. And knowing all this is how it started is not going to solve it. Because no amount of effort to not listen to the devil's lies will work. We will continue to. But there is a new Adam, a second Adam. And therefore, we have hope. Matthew chapter 4, which we uh, read earlier, documents another scene like that of Genesis 3. This time it's Jesus who is being tempted by the devil, God's son. Once again, the truthfulness of God's words are being put into question. 
Once again, God's offer of true life is being put into question. But this time, this second Adam resists. He trusts God's words and refuses to give in to the devil's temptations. And the amazing thing is that he did it for me and he did it for you. Jesus Christ, who Hebrews says was tempted in every way like you, but did not sin, lived a perfect life for you. The devil is the father of lies, but Jesus came full of grace and truth, John 1. He did this to defeat the devil. He did it to bring those who've exchanged the truth about God for a lie back into relationship with God. Romans 1. So what should we do in response to what we've heard? Most of our country have been watching Line of Duty on BBC. I don't know whether you have. A TV show about corrupt police officers. Now don't worry, no spoilers at all, you're totally safe. But in this TV show, the suspected corrupt police officers are interviewed in a glass box uh, interview room in the middle of the police station. And as they're shown evidence against them, each of them has a decision to make. Do they keep the lying going? Do they pile untruth on untruth and hope to get out of there? Or do they open up with the full truth and hope for a merciful and uh, generous judge? Well, we are all in that glass box. We have all believed the devil's lies. We've lived the lie that we are God and that our actions have no consequences. And we have a choice. We can keep the lies going, blame others and our circumstances, try to cover up our guilt and shame ourselves, lie to God, treat him as a stingy joy thief and face death away from God. Or we can embrace the truth. We can accept that we've lived a lie. We can confess the serious mistakes we've made. We can start to walk in the truth. Not in the vain hope that the judge will let us off, but in the certain hope that God will be merciful and gracious and forgive us because of his son, the second Adam's work on the cross. As that song so brilliantly put, God yearns for you. He was willing to go where Adam had been and failed, where we would go and fail and resist the devil's lies. All we need to do is put our trust in Christ the death that we're promised by God in Genesis 2 for believing the devil's lies. Well, Jesus died that death on the cross on our behalf. The perfect life of obedience that he lived then becomes credited to our account. So we are no longer guilty in God's eyes. We are clothed, the Bible says, in Christ's righteousness. So we're no longer naked and in a position of shame. And what's the future for Satan? Well, Revelation 20 verse 10. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire forever. He's going to be defeated forever. It might seem now like Satan has power. It might seem like in your life, his lies are believable. But he has lost. 
and he will ultimately be defeated because God's enemies always lose. So trust in Christ and walk in the truth. Let me pray for us. Father God, we are so aware of our own sin. We have believed the lies that Satan has told us, just like our father Adam. We have sinned and disobeyed and distrusted you when you are the life-giving, generous God who deserves all praise and is the source of all joy. We believe the father of lies. Thank you for Jesus defeating Satan. Thank you for him going where none of us could have gone. We thank you for your forgiveness. We pray you will protect us from the devil's lies. Lead us not into temptation, as we prayed earlier, and keep us fixed on your truth. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Amen.